Daily Drive is brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Innovation. Resilience. Agility. It's how Michigan businesses continue to work together to make a difference now and shape the future. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Daily Drive. I'm Steve Smith with Automotive News. It's Monday, August 30th. When it comes to electrification, autonomy, connectivity, shared transportation, and other trends and technologies defining the future of mobility, discussion often centers on the capabilities, the readiness, the maturity of the technology, consumer acceptance, and the wonderful new experiences that can be unlocked, the public-private partnerships, and the interesting partnerships between companies in different industries it's going to require to make the future of mobility a reality. Intertwined with all of that discussion is a complex framework of federal, state, and local laws and regulations that Sidley's Justin Savage, partner and global co-leader of the law firm's environmental practice, says will have implications on electrification and other emerging trends. For example, he says while it's important not to paint a broad brush, the Justice Department probes into electric vehicle manufacturers Lordstown and Nicola illustrate the challenges that can arise from young companies seeking to grow quickly, but perhaps not keeping up with compliance. The implications could be significant not only for the future of the company, but also potentially to executives and investors involved. Another example, says Savage, are recently announced mandates related to EVs and emissions and the complexity with both navigating and complying with regulations that can sometimes be different from state to state. He says companies working on some of these new technologies are going to face a host of regulators and other legal issues, including NHTSA, the EPA, and the California Air Resources Board in order to go to market. He also says some proposed legislation, like bans on cars with internal combustion engines, could also face legal challenges. It all adds up to a lot of complexity, but Savage believes that in the end, consumer demand and acceptance will define how fast legal and regulatory challenges are tackled. What else can we learn from recent probes into EV manufacturers? What's changed since Dieselcate that may have implications on complying with emission standards? And what needs to be considered among players partnering in areas like battery technology? We've reached Sidley's Justin Savage in Washington, D.C. Justin, thanks so much for joining me today on the Daily Drive podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you doing? Doing wonderful. It's good to speak with you today, and I'm really excited about today's conversation because we often talk about electric vehicles and autonomy and connectivity through the lens of emerging technologies, how this technology is going to impact vehicles and the customer experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But we rarely talk about some of the legal considerations, ramifications from from that area uh, of the automotive industry. So very, very excited to speak with you today. Why don't we start with this trend we're seeing where companies are going public through special purpose acquisition companies or, or SPACs. We're, we, you know, the accountants that I've spoken to on the show, some of the board directors that I've spoken with on the show, all are very consistent that says this process provides a very fast pathway to capital, 
One of the downside risks is operating like a public company and complying with SEC filings, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious, from the legal perspective, what are legal considerations that company going public via SPOC need to consider? Yeah, Steve, I, I think that's a great question. And we here at Sidley have worked on many SPACs, uh, including several in the auto industry. I, I, you've really flagged one of the, the key ones up front, which is as a public company, you assume some compliance responsibilities that perhaps a pu- private company would not have. I think the other issue that can arise are just making sure that with a SPAC, uh, you are being accurate and truthful to the market. And uh, you know, it's it's public knowledge uh, that the SEC and DOJ uh, had some concerns. As an example, with Trevor Milton, the founder of Nikola, and some of the statements uh, he made uh, to the market uh, for which he's been indicted in which there's an SEC investigation. And that's not to say that uh, he's guilty. He's presumed innocent and there'll be proceedings. And that's not to say that everyone who goes through a SPAC uh, has those concerns. I think for the most part, uh, there's lots of great companies and who will shake out at the end will be determined by business plans and uh, consumer demand for those products, not legal issues. But that said, uh, if you have a SPAC or an IPO or any public company, it comes with a heightened level of scrutiny, and certainly uh, the Nicola episode illustrates that it's important uh, when dealing with these issues to to keep those legal considerations uh, at top of mind. Even though, as I said, I think at the end of the day, uh, the deciding factor will be the market, not the loss. So you mentioned Nicola. Uh, Lordstown is also a uh, subject of a, a review by the Justice Department. What can we learn from those two examples? I think the first is really important, which is not to draw a broad brush about uh, startups generally. I think for the most part, uh, they've been doing swimmingly and, you know, will continue uh, to do so. But I think those two episodes just illustrate uh, the challenges um, uh, that can occur if you're not uh, keeping your eye on uh, compliance. And look, um, it, it's really an exciting time in our industry. I think it's, if you look back over history, there are a number of startups in the early 1900s, a number after World War II, and we're in this this boom time with EV, AV, and other technologies. But I think, you know, if you look at the uh, Nikola episode as an example, there were allegations that uh, there were prototypes that were promoted as the Nikola One as being out there, um, and some other products like hydrogen production, which the government alleges did not actually happen. So I think what you can learn there if you're um, in the market is trust but verify. So there can be lots of uh, claims made. Um, But unlike the tech, pure tech industry, where perhaps you can't tell whether software is borrowed from someone or how it operates, uh, you know, vehicles are tangible. So as an example, the Nikola One was uh, allegedly not able to operate, and they created a commercial by literally uh, pushing it down a hill. Uh, if that's what happened, that's obviously a problem. So for me, what it says, and we work uh, both from a compliance uh, perspective, working with companies and their compliance programs, and then defending companies, to me, what it really emphasizes is trust but verify. Um, this is not an area with like a pure software company where people can't figure it out. They can figure out if a truck can run or not. 
Well, it's interesting, right? Because as a company that is trying to build a customer base, that's trying to find investors, it is a balance of what I would describe as marketing messages, getting that appeal, that attractiveness to VCs, individual investors, as well as that that trust but verify, right? The 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 actual state of the business. That's a lot to navigate as an investor. How do you do that? If I'm interested as an investor, either private or some sort of venture capital, how do I how do I kind of balance those things and explore those things? Right. So for your institutional investors, there's um, sophisticated advisory services, sophisticated outside counsel or internal counsel that can help you. Um, and then for you know retail investors, I think there's other services that you can rely upon. But you know it is a challenge because take a counterexample. There were for a number of years short sellers who fought against Tesla, who said it wouldn't work, and it did in fact work. So. I think it's challenging when you're an investor or looking to partner with a company uh, to diligence it because, as you said, there is an aspect with these exciting new technologies of having a vision before the technology is fully proven or realized. I think that's absolutely essential for unlocking value in this space, and it's a balance against that vision with making sure you're not making statements uh, that are just perhaps demonstrably false. Like, do you have a prototype that works or not? Are you producing hydrogen or not? So uh, I think it is a challenge. But again, I think for the most part, those examples perhaps uh, overshadow in some ways what I think is just a dynamic market where, again, I think the marketplace will determine who are the winners and losers, uh, not necessarily processed legal process. Well, to your point, if I'm an everyday consumer interested in buying one of these vehicles, this type of noise in the in the system, if you will, relative to uh, justice department, you know, legal considerations around some of these examples, I think downstream that likely impacts the bottom line. That says if I'm putting these products out on the market, if there is some of the stuff that we're hearing and seeing these days, I would imagine that it as a consumer, it kind of gives me pause to say, hey, do I want one of these things? I, it, it might, but I think at the end of the day, consumers, like any auto, they want to have a relationship where they they love the vehicle. And so I think if you have got a product that has features, um, whether it's an EV, an ICE, an AV, or partial AV, uh, it's going to be that marketing to the consumer and touching a, a part of their passion for that technology or that vehicle. I I just don't think some of these legal issues ultimately are going to uh, overcome what I think is the, the bottom line issue, which is will consumers embrace these technologies? Um, I mean, I, I'd love to think that I was that self-important that all these legal issues around uh, these technologies – uh, would be the deciding factor. But I think for the most part, it's going to come down to whether there's um, um, market willingness to embrace them. We'll be right back with more. Innovation. Resilience. Agility. It's how Michigan businesses work together and continue to build the future. Our expertise, talented workforce, and collaborative environment are making a difference now 
and shaping the future. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio to put your plans in motion. That's michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Let's talk a little bit about this industry's push to electric vehicles. And specifically, we are seeing some very cool, some very interesting partnerships, right? There's an ongoing mantra that we hear very often that this push to electrified, even a push to autonomy, this industry can't do it alone. It's going to take public-private partnerships. It's going to take partnerships between companies that historically have been operating in siloed industry verticals and, and breaking through those industry walls. We're even hearing some noise recently relative to product recalls that for 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 components um, that are being brought to market through a a partnership. What are some of the legal considerations for companies that might be interested in creating these partnerships, might be working towards these partnerships? What are some legal considerations that should be top of mind? And I think a follow-up to that would be when there are hiccups in that partnership, any advice on the best way to approach those? Right. I mean, that's an excellent question. And if you're partnering on some of these new technologies, uh, you're going to be facing uh, a host of regulators and other legal issues. I mean, top of mind, of course, would be NHTSA, the safety regulator that's part of DOT. Uh, you can also, even for EVs, you have to go to EPA and the California Air Resources Board to go to market. And then, of course, there's uh, products liability law. I think the fundamentals uh, have not changed when you're looking at partnering, whether you're a tier one an OEM incumbent or a startup. Uh, it's, as we mentioned, doing your diligence. And then from a product perspective, having good engineering judgment, letting the data and the analysis drive uh, where you want to go instead of, uh, you know, artificial deadlines or other business considerations. And then I, I think a final one that's very important for our industry right now is just a commitment to regulatory transparency whether it's a conventional ICE vehicle, an EV, or a hydrogen vehicle, there are going to be hiccups. I mean, these are very complex machines, and we're adding layers of complexity, whether it's the powertrain, uh, whether it's mobility and the huge amount of data. So I think having a commitment that as issues arise, you'll be able to partner and discuss with your regulator. Because you know my experience has certainly been in this industry and others, um, that if there are major issues, eventually those will come out. And I think it's much better to deal with them in a proactive way with your regulator. And depending on the product, there can be a different lead regulator um, than it is to sort of sit back and hope that things don't come to the surface. We're hearing a lot about EV mandates at the federal and state level, where they're talking about it in infrastructure and clean energy and and all of these things um, in in Washington and even at the state level. Are there legal issues that need to be understood when it comes to EV mandates? Yes, absolutely. So the way it works is in the 1960s and 70s, uh, California had its own auto emissions program, actually before EPA. So when Congress passed the Federal Clean Air Act that gave EPA authority to regulate tailpipe emissions, California got its own special authority to address uh, conditions in California. Well, what, what's happened uh, since then 
is Congress has basically said, EPA, only you can regulate emissions, but uh, California, you can apply for a waiver of, it's called preemption, meaning you can actually have your own program and regulate emissions. California has done that for decades. The last administration tried to pull that back. And so for California, before the Trump administration had EV mandates on the books, I think since 2013, which required a certain percentage of vehicles sold into California to be EVs, and then other states could adopt that. The Trump administration tried to end that. It revoked California's, it's called a waiver, to have its own standards for electric vehicles. This administration is proposing to reinstate that. What 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 big picture do we need to take away from that? I think first, California's proposed banning ICEs, uh, internal combustion engines, by 2030. That is going to require some kind of waiver uh, from this administration or the next administration. So I think that's important to keep in mind that California could try to move forward, but there is some Supreme Court precedent that they're going to have to get that a permission or waiver uh, from EPA. And then the second, I think we've already touched on, which is you can have a mandate uh, to have to sell EVs. But at the end of the day, I think it's going to come down to whether consumers are persuaded and some of the concerns over range or other things are overcome. And we've seen some exciting new products uh, recently from incumbent OEMs like Ford. And so, but it is important to keep in mind that in order for mandates to occur, California has to act and then EPA has to approve it. Separate and apart from those mandates, it's all the infrastructure. So charging stations uh, are an important part of the pending infrastructure bill in Congress. And then one that doesn't get a lot of discussion, but it's very important, is if you have increasing EV penetration in the market, what does that mean for the transmission and distribution system? And there's various estimates out there, but that's certainly something to keep an eye on as we look at the market for EVs, which are what are we doing from an ancillary infrastructure perspective, separate and apart from the legal mandates. I'm curious. This gets very complicated for automakers, for suppliers, for energy companies, right? You go across state line to state line to state line. If the rules are different, do you think we're going to see some sort of ripple effect from California over the country that we're going to see parity when it comes to these mandates, when it comes to these regulations and, and how that informs these companies' investments in a, in a California versus an Illinois, for example? Right. I, that is an excellent question. And the way the Clean Air Act is set up is it's supposed to guard against a patchwork of state regulations because the idea is it's hard enough to make uh, vehicles globally for the North American market versus China versus other markets. And so we want to try to ease ease that burden by having uniformity. So the way the Clean Air Act is set up, EPA has a federal standard. California can have a standard but then other states can opt into it. And so I think some of the, the legal issues you'll have around that are how many states opt into that where you have enough where it makes a difference. Other issues you'll have are, are people going to challenge California's ability to have a ban on the internal combustion engine. I mean, there's many stakeholders and some of their arguments would include that when California got this authority, that it was not uh, intended to address global pollutants such as uh, CO2 and greenhouse gases, but more for local air quality conditions in LA and other areas of the state. So all those legal issues will play out. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, it's going to be driven by consumer acceptance or demand. 
and even if we see these um, EV mandates, there's still going to be uh, significant ice on the road for some time just because of the useful life of vehicles. Let's close with complying with emissions mandates, et cetera. We saw what happened around Dieselgate and trying to cheat regulation uh, from, from an OEM perspective. What's changed since Dieselgate and how might that prevent companies from trying to cheat against EV mandates? Right. I, I, I think from a compliance perspective, emissions, EPA, the California Resources Board are all top of mind for OEMs, tier one suppliers, and the aftermarket. Um, Dieselgate happened. And I think there's been a lot of attention at a variety of agencies because of that. And, you know, certainly in my practice, you work uh, with boards consistently throughout my 25 year career. But I think, you know, in the auto sector, it's particularly this issue has the attention of management. So I'm actually optimistic that many or most companies have robust uh, compliance programs. There's going to be gray areas. There's going to be lags in the regulation. Um, but I do think you point out there's uh, their regulation of EVs will continue with EPA and California and other agencies. And so I think companies need to continue to make compliance uh, a priority because unfortunately after Dieselgate, uh, it's I, just to use EPA as an example, there used to be a handful of people at EPA and DC who did auto cases. All 10 regional offices of EPA now do that. Take the SEC for as an example. They now regularly do auto cases. So I think the spotlight remains on the industry. And I think in some ways uh, that may be helpful just to make sure that people are on their toes and then continue to invest in compliance programs. Justin, thanks so much for joining me today on the Daily Drive podcast. Terrific perspectives, as I said when we opened, from a legal perspective that uh, I think our listeners will enjoy. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Steve. That's Daily Drive for Monday, August 30th. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And to catch up on all of our episodes of Daily Drive, go to autonews.com forward slash daily drive. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy your day. We'll be back tomorrow.